Section three of the Trial of Oscar Wilde by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section three. In all men's hearts, a slumbering swine lies low, says the French poet. So come ye whose porcine instincts have never been awakened or if rampant successfully hidden and hurl the biggest sharpest stones you can lay your hands on at your wretched degraded humiliated brother who has been found out the life and death of oscar wilde poet playwright poser and convict can only fittingly be summarized as a tragedy every misspent life is a tragedy more or less but how much more tragic appear the elements of despair and disaster when the victim to his own vices is a man of genius exercising a considerable influence upon the thought and culture of his day and possessing every advantage which birth education talent and station can bestow oscar wilde was more than a clever and original thinker he was the inventor of a certain literary style and though his methods showy and eccentric as they were lent themselves readily to imitation none of his followers could approach their master in the particular mode which he had made his own there can be two opinions as to the merits of his plays there can be only one judgment as to their daring and audacious originality of the ordinary and the commonplace wilde had a horror which with him was almost a religion he was unmercifully chaffed throughout america when he appeared in public in a light green suit adorned with a large sunflower but he did not don this outrageous costume because he preferred such startling clothing he adopted the dress in order to be original and assumed it because no other living man was likely to be so garbed he was consumed in fact with overpowering vanity he was possessed of a veritable demon of self-esteem he ate strange foods and drank unusual liquors in order to be unlike any of his contemporaries his eccentricities of dress continued to the end on the first night of one of his plays it was a brilliant triumph he was called upon by an enthusiastic audience for the customary speech he was much exercised in his mind as to what he could say that would be unconventional and sensational no mere platitudes or banalities for the author of lady windermere's fan who made a god of the spirit of epigram and almost canonized the art of repartee he said ladies and gentlemen i'm glad you like my play i like it very much myself too which if candid was hardly the remark of a modest and retiring author the leopard cannot change his spots and neither can the lion his skin even in his beautiful book de profundis surely the most extraordinary volume of recent years the man's character is writ so plainly that he who runs may read man of letters man of fashion man of hideous vices oscar wilde remained to the last moment of his murdered life a self-conscious egotist gentlemen 
he gasped on his deathbed hearing the doctors express misgivings as to their fees it would appear that i am dying beyond my means it was a brilliant sally and one can picture the startled faces of the medical attendants a genius lay a-dying and a genius he remained till the breath of life departed genius we know to be closely allied to insanity and it were charitable to describe this man as mad besides approaching very nearly to the truth something was out of gear in that finely attuned mind some thorn there was among the intellectual roses which made him what he was he pined for strange passions new sensations his was the temperament of the roman sybarite he often sighed for a return to the days when vice was deified he spoke of the glories of the devastation the awful woman and the alexandrian school at which little girls and young boys were instructed in all the most secret and unthinkable forms of vice modern women satisfied him not perverted passions consumed the fire of his being he had had children of his wife but sexual intercourse between him and that most unfortunate lady was more honoured in the breach than in the observance they had their several rooms on many occasions wilde actually brought the companions of his abominable rites and sinful joys to his own home and indulged in his frightful propensities beneath the roof of the house which sheltered his own sons and their most unhappy mother could the man capable of this atrocity possess a normal mind can oscar wilde who committed moral suicide and made of himself a social pariah be regarded as a sane man london society is not so strict nor straight-laced that it will not forgive much laxity in its devoted votaries rumour had been busy with the name of oscar wilde for a long time before the whole awful truth became known he was seen constantly at theatres and restaurants with persons in no way fit to be his associates and these persons were not girls or women he paraded his shameful friendships and flaunted his villainous companions in society's face people began to look askance at the famous wit doors began to be closed to him he was ostracised by all but the most bohemian coteries but even those who were still proud to rank him among their friends did not know how far he had wilfully drawn himself into the web of disgrace much that seemed strange and unaccountable was attributed to his well-known love of pose men shrugged their shoulders and declared that wild meant no harm it was his vainglorious way of showing his contempt for the opinion of the world men of such parts could not be judged by ordinary standards intellectually wilde was fit to mix with the immortals if he preferred the society of miserable beardless stunted youths destitute alike of decency or honour it was no affair of theirs and so on ad nauseam meanwhile heedless of the warnings of friends and the sneers of foes wilde went his own way to destruction 
he was addicted to the vice and crime of sodomy long before he formed a friendship which was destined to involve him in irretrievable ruin in london he met a younger son of the eccentric marquis of queensbury lord alfred douglas by name this youth was being educated at cambridge he was of peculiar temperament and talented in a strong frothy style he was good-looking in an effeminate ladylike way he wrote verse his poems not being of a manner which could be acceptable to a self-respecting publication his efforts appeared in an eccentric and erratic magazine which was called the chameleon in this precious serial appeared a poem from the pen of lord alfred dedicated to his father in these filial words to the man i hate oscar wilde at once developed an extraordinary and dangerous interest in this immature literary egg a being of his own stamp after his own heart was lord alfred douglas the love of women delighted him not the possession of a young girl's person had no charm for him he yearned for higher flights in the realms of love he sought unnatural affection wilde experienced in all the symptoms of a disordered sexual fancy contrived to exercise a remarkable and sinister influence over this youth again and again and again did his father implore lord alfred douglas to separate himself from the tempter lord queensbury threatened persuaded bribed urged cajoled all to no purpose wilde and his son were constantly together the nature of their friendship became the talk of the town it was proclaimed from the housetops the marquis determined to rescue him if it were humanly possible horsewhipped his son in a public thoroughfare and was threatened with a summons for assault on one occasion it was the opening night of one of the wild plays he sent the author a bouquet of choice vegetables three or four times he wrote to him begging him to cancel his friendship with lord alfred once he called at the house in tite street and there was a terrible scene the marquis fumed wilde laughed he assured his lordship that only at his son's own request would he break off the association which existed between them the marquis driven to desperation called wilde a disgusting name the latter with a show of wrath ordered the peer from his door and he was obliged to leave at all costs and hazards at the risk of any pain and grief to himself lord queensbury was determined to break off the disgraceful liaison he stopped his son's allowance but wilde had at that time plenty of money and his purse was his friend's at last the father went to the length of leaving an insulting message for oscar wilde at that gentleman's club he called there and asked for wilde the clerk at the inquiry office stated that mr wilde was not on the premises the marquis then produced a card and wrote upon it in pencil these words oscar wilde is a bugger this elegant missive he directed to be handed to the author when he should next appear at the club from this card lord queensbury's last resource grew the whole great case which amazed and horrified the world in eighteen ninety five 
Oscar Wilde was compelled, however reluctantly, to take the matter up. Had he remained quiescent under such a public affront, his career in England would have been at an end. He bowed to the inevitable and a libel action was prepared. One is often compelled to wonder if he foresaw the outcome. One asks oneself if he realised what defeat in this case would portend. The stakes were desperately high. He risked, in a court of law, his reputation, his position, his career, and even his freedom. Did he know what the end to it all would be? Whatever Wilde's fears and expectations were, his opponent did not underestimate the importance of the issue. If he could not induce a jury of twelve of his fellow countrymen to believe that the plaintiff was what he had termed him, he, the Marquis of Queensbury, would be himself disgraced. Furthermore, there would, in the event of failure, be heavy damages to pay, and the poor man was not over-rich. Wilde had many and powerful friends. For reasons which it is not necessary to enlarge upon, Lord Queensbury was not liked or respected by his own order. The ultimate knowledge that he was a father striving to save a loved son from infamy changed all that, and his lordship met with nothing but sympathy from the general public in the latter stages of the great case. Sir Edward Clarke was retained for the plaintiff. It is needless to refer to the high estimation in which this legal and political luminary is held by all classes of society. From first to last, he devoted himself to the lost cause of Oscar Wilde with a whole-hearted devotion which was beyond praise. The upshot of the libel action must have pained and disgusted him, yet he refused to abandon his client, and in the two criminal trials, defended him with a splendid loyalty and with the marked ability that might be expected from such a counsel. The acute, energetic, silver-spoken Mr. Carson led on the other side. It is not necessary to make more than passing mention of the conspicuous skill with which the able lawyer conducted the case for the defendant. Even the gifted plaintiff himself cut a sorry figure when opposed to Mr. Carson. Extraordinary interest was displayed in the action, and the courts were besieged on each day that the trial lasted. Remarkable revelations were expected, and they were indeed forthcoming. Enormous pains had been taken to provide a strong defence, and it was quite clear almost after the first day that Wilde's case would infallibly break down. He made some astonishing admissions in the witness box, and even disgusted many of his friends by the flippancy and affected unconcern of his replies to questions of the most damaging nature. He, apparently, saw nothing indecorous in facts which must shock any other than the most depraved. He saw nothing disgusting in friendships of a kind to which only one construction could be put. He gave expensive dinners to ex-barmen and the like, ignorant, brutish young fools, because they amused him. He presented youths of a questionable moral character with silver cigarette cases because their society was pleasant. He took young men to share his bedroom at hotels and saw nothing remarkable in such proceedings. 
he gave sums of thirty pounds to ill-bred youths accomplished blackmailers because they were hard up and he felt they did not deserve poverty he assisted other young men of a character equally undesirable to go to america and received letters from them in which they addressed him as dear oscar and sent him their love in short his own statements damned him out of his own mouth and he posing all the time was he convicted the case could have but one ending sir edward clark pained surprised shocked consented to a verdict for the marquis of queensbury and the great libel case was at an end the defendant left the court proudly erect conscious that he had been the means of saving his son and of eradicating from society a canker which had been rotting it unnoticed except by a few for a very long time oscar wilde left the court a ruined and despised man people there were one or two left who were loyal to him turned aside from him with loathing he had nodded to six or seven friends in court on the last day of the trial and turned ashen pale when he observed their averted looks all was over for him the little supper parties with a few choice wits the glorious intoxication of first-night applause the orgies in the infamous dens of his boon companions all these were no more for him oscar wilde bon vivant man of letters arbiter of literary fashion stood at the bar of public opinion a wretch guilty of crimes against which the body recoils and the mind revolts oh what a falling off was there if any reader would care to know the impression made upon the opinion of the london world by the revelations of this lawsuit let him turn to the daily telegraph of the morning following the dramatic result of the trial in that great newspaper appeared a leading article in reference to oscar wilde the terms of which though deserved were most scathing denunciatory and bitter yet a general feeling of relief permeated the regret which was universally expressed at so terrible a termination of a distinguished career society was at no pains to hide its relief that the orgean stable has been cleansed and that a terrible scandal had been exercised from its midst it now becomes a necessary albeit painful task to describe the happenings incidental or subsequent to the wild and queensbury proceedings it was certain that matters could not be allowed to rest as they were a jury in a public court had convinced themselves that lord queensbury's allegations were strictly true and the duty of the public prosecutor was truly clear the law is not or should not be a respecter of persons and oscar wilde genius though he were was not less amenable to the law than would be any ignorant boor suspected of similar crimes the machinery of legal process was set in action and the arrest of wilde followed as a matter of course a prominent name in the libel action against lord queensbury had been that of one alfred taylor this individual besides being himself guilty of the most infamous practices had it would appear for long acted as a sort of precursor for the apostle of culture 
and his capture took place at nearly the same time as that of his principal. The latter was arrested at a certain quiet and fashionable hotel, whither he had gone with one or two yet loyal friends after the trial for libel. His arrest was not unexpected, of course, but it created a tremendous sensation, and vast crowds collected at Bow Street Police Station and in the vicinity during the preliminary examinations before the magistrate. The prisoner Wilde bore himself with some show of fortitude, but it was clear that the iron had already entered into his soul, and his old air of jaunty indifference to the opinion of the world had plainly given way to a mental anxiety which could not altogether be hidden, though it could be controlled. On one occasion, as fur-coated, silk-hatted, he entered the dock, he nodded familiarly to the late Sir Augustus Harris, but that magnet of the theatrical world deliberately turned his back upon the playwriting celebrity. The evidence from first to last was followed with the most intense interest, and the end of it was that Oscar Wilde was fully committed for trial. The case came on at the Old Bailey during the month of April 1895, and it was seen that the interest had in no wise abated. Mr Justice Charles presided, and he was accompanied by the customary retinue of corporation dignitaries. The court was crowded in every part, and hundreds of people were unsuccessful in efforts to obtain admission. A reporter for a Sunday newspaper wrote, Wilde's personal appearance has changed little since his committal from Bow Street. He wears the same clothes and continues to carry the same hat. He looks haggard and worn, and his long hair that was so carefully arranged when last he was in the court, though not then in the dock, is now dishevelled. Taylor, on the other hand, still neatly dressed, appears not to have suffered from his enforced confinement, but he no longer attempts to regard the proceedings with that indifference which he affected when first before the magistrate. As soon as Wilde and his confederate took their places in the dock, each held a whispered consultation with his counsel, and the clerk of arraigns then read over the indictments. Both prisoners pleaded, Not guilty. Not guilty. Taylor speaking in a loud and confident tone. Wilde spoke quietly, looked very grave, and gave attentive heed to the formal opening proceedings. Mr. C. F. Gill led for the prosecution, and he rose amidst a breathless silence to outline the main facts of the case. After begging the jury to dismiss from their minds anything that they might have heard or read in regard to the affair, and to abandon all prejudice on either side, he described at some length the circumstances which led up to the present prosecution. He spoke of the arrest and committal of the Marquis of Queensbury on a charge of criminal libel, and of the collapse of the case for the prosecution when the case was heard at the Old Bailey. He alluded to the subsequent inevitable arrest of Wilde and Taylor, and of the committal of both prisoners to take their trial at the present sessions. Wilde, he said, was well known as a dramatic author, and generally as a literary man of unusual attainments. He had resided, until his arrest, at a house in Tite Street, Chelsea, where his wife lived with the children of the marriage. Taylor had had numerous addresses, 
but for the time covered by these charges had dwelt in little college street and afterwards in chapel street although wilde had a house in tight street he had at different times occupied rooms in st james's place the savoy hotel and the albemarle hotel it would be shown that wilde and taylor were in league for certain purposes and mr gale then explained the specific allegations against the prisoners wilde he asserted had not hesitated soon after his first introduction to taylor to explain to him to what purpose he wished to put their acquaintance taylor was familiar with a number of young men who were in the habit of giving their bodies or selling them to other men for the purpose of sodomy it appeared that there were a number of youths engaged in this abominable traffic and that one and all of them were known to taylor who went about and sought out for them men of means who were willing to pay heavily for the indulgence of their favourite vice mr gill endeavoured to show that taylor himself was given to sodomy and that he had himself indulged in these filthy practices with the same youths as he agreed to procure for wilde the visits of the latter to taylor's rooms were touched upon and the circumstances attending these visits were laid bare on nearly every occasion when wilde called a young man was present with whom he committed the act of sodomy the names of various young men connected with these facts were mentioned in turn and the case of the two parkers was given as a sample of many others on which the learned counsel preferred to dwell with less minuteness when taylor gave up his rooms in little college street and took up his abode in chapel street he left behind him a number of compromising papers which would be produced in evidence against the prisoners and he should submit in due course that there was abundant corroboration of the statements of the youths involved mr gill pointed out the peculiarities in the case of frederick atkins this youth had accompanied the prisoner wilde to paris and there could be no doubt whatever that the latter had in the most systematic way endeavoured to influence this young man's mind towards vicious courses and had endeavoured to mould him to his own depraved will the relations which had existed between the prisoner and another lad one alfred wood were also fully described and the learned counsel made special allusion to the remarkable manner in which wilde had lavished money upon wood prior to the departure of that youth for america mr gill referred to yet another of wilde's youthful familiars namely sidney mavor in regard to whom he said the jury must form their own conclusions after they had heard the evidence among other things to which he would ask them to direct careful attention was a letter written in pencil by taylor the prisoner to this youth the communication ran dear sid i cannot wait any longer come at once and see oscar at tight street i am yours ever alfred taylor the use of the christian name of wilde in so familiar a way suggested the nature of the acquaintance which existed between mavor and wilde who was old enough to be his father in conclusion mr gill asked the jury to give the case painful as it must necessarily be their most earnest and careful consideration 
both wilde and taylor paid keen attention to the opening statement they exchanged no word together and it was observed that wilde kept as far apart from his companion in the dock as he possibly could the first witness called was charles parker he proved to be a rather smartly attired youth fresh-coloured and of course clean-shaven he was very pale and appeared uneasy he stated that he had first met taylor at the st james's restaurant the latter had got into conversation with him and the young fellows with him and had insisted on standing drinks conversation of a certain nature passed between them taylor called attention to the prostitutes who frequent piccadilly circus and remarked i can't understand sensible men wasting their money on painted trash like that many do though but there are a few who know better now you could get money in a certain way easily enough if you cared to the witness had formerly been a valet and he was at this time out of employment he understood to what taylor alluded and made a coarse reply mr gill i am obliged to ask you what it was you actually said witness i do not like to say you were less squeamish at the time i dare say i ask you for the words i said that if any old gentleman with money took a fancy to me i was agreeable i was terribly hard up what did taylor say he laughed and said that men far cleverer richer and better than i preferred things of that kind did taylor mention the prisoner wilde not at that time he arranged to meet me again and i consented where did you first meet wilde at the solferino restaurant tell me what transpired taylor said he could introduce me to a man who was good for plenty of money wilde came in later and i was formally introduced dinner was served for four in a private room who made the fourth my brother william parker i had promised taylor that he should accompany me what happened during dinner there was plenty of champagne and brandy and coffee we all partook of it of what nature was the conversation general at first nothing was then said as to the purposes for which we had come together and then wilde invited me to go to his rooms at the savoy hotel only he and i went leaving my brother and taylor behind wilde and i went in a cab at the savoy we went to his wilde's sitting-room more drink was offered you there yes we had liqueurs let us know what occurred he committed the act of sodomy upon me with your consent the witness did not reply further examined he said that wilde on that occasion had given him two pounds and asked him to call upon him again a week later he did so the same thing occurred and wilde then gave him three pounds the witness next described a visit to little college street to taylor's rooms wilde used to call there and the same thing occurred as at the savoy for a fortnight or three weeks the witness lodged in park walk close to taylor's house there too he was visited by wilde the witness gave a detailed account of the disgusting proceedings there he said 
I was asked by Wilde to imagine that I was a woman and that he was my lover. I had to keep up this illusion. I used to sit on his knees and he used to play with my privates as a man might amuse himself with a girl. Wilde insisted in this filthy make-believe being kept up. Wilde gave him a silver cigarette case and a gold ring, both of which articles he pawned. The prisoner said, I don't suppose boys are different to girls in acquiring presents from them who are fond of them. He remembered Wilde having rooms at St. James's Place and the witness visited him there. Where else have you been with Wilde? To Ketna's restaurant. What happened there? We dined there. We always had a lot of wine. Wilde would talk of poetry and art during dinner and of the old Roman days. On one occasion you proceeded from Kettner's to Wilde's house. Yes, we went to Tide Street. It was very late at night. Wilde let himself and me in with a latchkey. I remained the night, sleeping with the prisoner, and he himself let me out in the early morning, before anyone was about. Where else have you visited this man? At the Albemarle Hotel. The same thing happened then. Where did your last interview take place? I last saw Wilde in Trafalgar Square, about nine months ago. He was in a hansom and saw me. He alighted from the hansom. What did he say? He said, well, you are looking as pretty as ever. He didn't ask me to go anywhere with him then. The witness went on to say that during the period of his acquaintance with Wilde, he frequently saw Taylor, and the latter quite understood and was aware of the motive of the acquaintance. At the little College Street rooms he had frequently seen Wood, Atkins and Scaife, and he knew that these youths were in the same line at the same game as himself. In the August previous to this trial, he was at a certain house in Fitzroy Square. Orgies of the most disgraceful kind used to happen there. The police made a raid upon the premises, and he and the tailors were arrested. From that time he had ceased all relationship with the latter. Since that event he had enlisted, and while away in the country he was seen by someone representing Lord Queensbury and made a statement. The evidence of this witness created a great sensation in court, and it was increased when Sir Edward Clarke rose to cross-examine. This began after the adjournment. Sir Edward Clark. When were you seen in the country in reference to this case? Towards the end of March. Who saw you? Mr. Russell. Was there no examination before that? No. Did you state at Bow Street that you received £30 not to say anything about a certain case? Yes. Now, I do not ask you to give me the name of the gentleman from whom this money was extorted, but I ask you to give me the name of the agents. Wood and Allen. Where were you living then? In Cranford Street. When did the incident occur in consequence of which you received that thirty pounds? About two weeks before. Where? At Camera Square. I'll leave that question. You say positively that Mr. Wilde committed sodomy with you at the Savoy? Yes. But you have been in the habit of accusing other gentlemen of the same offence? Never. Unless it has been done. I submit that you blackmail gentlemen. 
No, sir, I have accepted money, but it has been offered to me to pay me for the offence. I have been solicited. I have never suggested this offence to gentlemen. Was the door locked during the time you described? I do not think so. It was late, and the prisoner told the waiter not to come up again. The next witness was William Parker. This youth corroborated his brother's evidence. He said he was present at the dinner with Taylor and Wilde described by the last witness. Wilde paid all his attention to his, witnesses, brother. He, Wilde, often fed his brother off his own fork or out of his own spoon. His brother accepted a preserved cherry from Wilde's own mouth. He took it into his, and this trick was repeated three or four times. His brother went off with the prisoner to his rooms at the Savoy, and the witness remained behind with Taylor, who said, Your brother is lucky. Oscar does not care what he pays, if he fancies a chap. Ellen Grant was the landlady of the house in Little College Street at which Taylor lodged. She gave evidence as to the visits of various lords, and stated that Wilde was a fairly frequent caller. He would remain for hours, and one of the lads was generally closeted with him. Once she tried the door and found it locked. She heard whispering and laughing, and her suspicions were aroused, though she did not like to take steps in the matter. Lucy Rumsby, who let a room to Charles Parker at Chelsea, gave rather similar evidence, but Wilde does not appear to have called there more than once, and that occasion it was to take out Parker, who went away with him. Sophia Gray, Taylor's landlady in Chapel Street, also gave evidence. She amused the court by the emphatic and outspoken way in which she explained that she had no idea of the nature of what was going on. Several young men were constantly calling upon Taylor, and were alone with him for a long time, but he used to say that they were clerks for whom he hoped to find employment. The prisoner, Wilde, was a frequent visitor. But all this latter evidence paled as regards sinister significance beside that furnished by a young man named Alfred Wood. This young wretch admitted to acts of the grossest indecency with Oscar Wilde. He said, Wilde saw his influence to induce me to consent. He made me nearly drunk. He used to put his hand inside my trousers beneath the table at dinner and compel me to do the same to him. Afterwards, I used to lie on a sofa with him. It was a long time, however, before I would allow him to actually do the act of sodomy. He gave me money to go to America. Edward Clark submitted this self-disgraced witness to a very vigorous cross-examination. What have you been doing since your return from America? Well, I have not done much. Have you done anything? I have had no regular employment. I thought not. I could not get anything to do. As a matter of fact, you have had no respectable work for over three years. Well, no. Did not you, in conjunction with Alan, succeed in getting three hundred pounds from a gentleman? Yes, but he was guilty with Alan. How much did you receive? I advised Alan how to proceed. He gave me one hundred thirty pounds. Who else got any of this money? Parker. Charles Parker got some, and also Wood. Thomas Price was the next witness. 
this man was a waiter at a private hotel in st james's and he testified to wilde's visits there and to the number of young men of quite inferior station who called to see him then came frank atkins whose evidence is given in full mr avery how old are you i am twenty years old what is your business i have been a billiard marker you are doing nothing now no who introduced you to wilde i was introduced to him by schwabby in november eighteen ninety two have you met lord alfred douglas i have i dined with him and wilde on several occasions they pressed me to go to paris you went with them yes you told wilde on one occasion while in paris that you had spent the previous night with a woman no i had arranged to meet a girl at the moulin rouge and wilde told me not to go however i did go but the woman was not there you returned to london with wilde yes did he give you money he gave me a cigarette case you were then the best of friends he called me fred and i addressed him as oscar we liked each other but there was no harm in it did you visit wilde on your return yes at tart street wilde also called upon me in oldenburg street on the latter occasion one of the parkers was present you know most of these youths do you know Sidney Mavor? Only by sight. Sir Edward Clark. Were you ill at Osnaburg Street? Yes, I had the smallpox and was removed to the hospital ship. Before I went, I wrote to Parker asking him to write to Wilde and request him to come and see me, and he did so. You are sure you returned from Paris with Mr. Wilde? Yes. Did any impropriety ever take place between you and Wilde? Never. Have you ever lived with a man named Burton? yes what was he a bookmaker have you and this burton been engaging in the business of blackmailing i have a professional name i have sometimes called myself denny has this man burton to your knowledge obtained money from gentlemen by accusing them or threatening to accuse them of certain offences not to my knowledge not in respect to a certain birmingham gentleman no that being your answer i must particularize on June ninth, eighteen ninety one, did you and Burton obtain a large sum of money from a Birmingham gentleman? Certainly not. Then I ask you if in June ninety one Burton did not take rooms for you in Thatchbrook Street? Yes, and he lived with me there. You were in the habit of taking men home with you then? Not for the purposes of blackmail. Well, for indecent purposes. No. Give me the name of two or three people whom you have taken home to that address i cannot i forget them now i am going to ask you a direct question and i ask you to be careful in your reply were you and burton ever taken to rochester road police station no well was burton i think not at least he was not to my knowledge did the birmingham gentleman give to burton a cheque for two hundred pounds drawn in a name of s dennis or denny your known name not to my knowledge about two years ago did you and someone else go to the victoria hotel with two american gentlemen no i did not never i think you did be careful in your replies did burton extort money from these gentlemen i have never been there at all have you ever been to anderton's hotel and stayed at night with a gentleman whom you threatened the next morning with exposure i have not when did you go abroad with burton i uh, think in february eighteen ninety two 
When did you last go with him abroad? Last spring. How long were you away? Oh, about a month. Where did you stay? We went to Nice and stayed at Geyser's Hotel. You were having a holiday? Yes. Which you continued with business in your usual way? The witness did not reply. What were you and Burton doing at Nice? Simply enjoying ourselves. During this visit of enjoyment you and Burton fell out, I think. Oh, dear no. Yet you separated from this Burton after that visit. I gave up being a bookmaker's clerk. What name did Burton use in the ring? Watson was his better name. Did you blackmail a gentleman at Nice? No. Are you sure there was no quarrel between you and Burton at Nice? There may have been a little one, but I don't remember anything of the kind. Mr. Grain then put some questions to the witness. Did you go to Scarborough about a year ago? Yes. Did Burton go with you? Yes. What was your business there? I was engaged professionally. I sang at the aquarium there. Did you get acquainted while there with a foreign gentleman? A count? Not acquainted. At this moment, Mr. Grain wrote a name on a piece of paper and handed it up to the witness, who read it. Do you know that gentleman? No. I heard his name mentioned at Scarborough. Then you never spoke to him? No. Was not a large sum, about five hundred pounds, paid to you or Burton by that gentleman about this time last year? No. Had you any engagement at the Scarborough Aquarium? Yes. How much did you receive a week? I was paid four pounds ten shillings. How long were you there? Three weeks. Have you ever lived in Buckingham Palace Road? I have. Mr. Grain wrote at this stage on another slip of paper, and it was handed up to the witness box. Look at that piece of paper. Do you know the name written there? I never saw it before. When were you living in Buckingham Palace Road? In 1992. Do you remember being introduced to an elderly man in the city? No. Did you take him to your room, permit him to commit sodomy with and upon you? Rob him of his pocketbook and threaten him with exposure if he complained? No! Did you threaten to extort money from him because he had agreed to accompany you home for a foul purpose? No. Did you ever stay at a place in the suburbs on the Southwestern Railway with Burton? No. What other addresses have you had in London during the last three years? None but those I've told you. This concluded the evidence of this witness for the time being. End of section three.